This is Restless. Welcome back to the Restless Podcast, a postmortem on the young, restless, and reformed, a top 20 podcast in Christianity in Norway. So we'd like to welcome all of our Scandinavian listeners. Is this true? This is true. Wow. This is awesome. Welcome, Norway. <laughs> welcome to the on podcast. Board. And welcome everyone else who wants us to talk about Mars Hill. And welcome, Pastor Michael. Is that what you want us to talk about today? Uh, talk about Norway? Or Mars Hill. <laughs> or Mars Hill. Our, our, our. That's our, that's our cash cow, is that yeah. what we call it? I mean, I we, think we might... make zero money. That's right. <laughs> we make zero money, but if, it, if there were a cash cow, our numbers definitely go up whenever we mention Mars Hill. Uh, no, I think today uh, we really need to talk a little bit more about something that we brought up in a previous episode, multiple previous episodes, but especially uh, a recent episode that we did covering the idea of in-person worship and the importance of in-person worship. And particularly, that is the regulative principle of worship. Yeah. So today, what we are going to do is we are going to have a brief where where we lay out our apologetic, or at least our brief understanding of the regulative principle of worship. Because last week, we were able to pronounce that virtual church is not church. That these kinds of things are not the way God has called us to worship. And I actually think it's really important we explain clearly how we think we can make those kinds of pronouncements. Because I think there's often a danger that people from a distance or people who broadcast themselves in some form um, either are are taken as to have some authority they don't or think they have some authority we don't. Yeah, this is super true. Um, so it's it's very easy. We've, I think, mentioned this when we talked about um, the, you know, the very idea of kind of the social media age but there is a way in which certain mediums give somebody the appearance of authority that they may or may not have and it allows them to speak into somebody's life in a way that they maybe shouldn't right maybe they have the right to do that but also sometimes they don't and so we don't want to do that here on the restless podcast we right. do not want to uh, take authority that is not ours to have and we do not want you to listen to us simply because we took the time to make a podcast. Uh, but we want to make sure that what we're saying is grounded in true authority, um, which is not just us. Right. And so what we believe is we believe we have warrant from the scriptures that the Reformed Church is summarized as the regular principle of worship to make statements like virtual church is not church. Uh, and other statements we may have made about worship over time. And so we think it's really important for you to hear about the regulative principle, for us to think about it. And actually, we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about the alternatives because we do understand that for most of us, it's pretty foreign. So before we go further, if you remember in our episode called Reformed, which you can go find and find in the show notes, we said we think to become, to really uh, understand what is meant historically by being reformed, we think it involves three things. So the thing people mostly mean on a popular level about being reformed is they mean, are you accepting the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism? We often call that just being a Calvinist. The second one is covenant theology, right? How do you read the story of the Bible? How do you identify the people of God? And the third one is the regulative principle of worship. And that is what we're going to discuss today. And we think the three of those things off a, a broader but not overly broad definition of what it means to be reformed. Yeah, especially in our context. Obviously, we talk uh, the young, restless, and reformed. And when we talk about the YRR, generally speaking, uh, New Calvinism was just that. It was, it was Calvinism of a kind, but it was usually not inclusive of the regulative principle. And so um, if there were, and, and covenant theology, you could say that maybe there was elements of it, mm -hmm. um, but it often would not go all the way, you know, such as with things like pedal baptism. And so you have uh, elements of covenant theology. You usually have an acceptance, uh, for the most part anyway, of the doctrines of grace. Uh, but those things are divorced then from, you know, maybe a, a, a larger or more well-rounded historic understanding of covenant theology, as well as this regulative principle and the idea of how how we are to approach God. 
And I think to Pastor Michael's point, I think the most foreign thing for me as a new Calvinist was this idea of the regulative principle of worship. I think that is the one that yeah, I had absolutely. I had yeah. no clue coming in on. Right, me too, for sure. It was completely different than, I guess, what I had just assumed. And I think that the reason we include it in being Reformed is I actually think most of the Reformers, especially the non-Lutheran Reformers, would be shocked that our definitions of Reformed did not include a specific set of beliefs about worship. We can look back to as far as John Calvin. When he wrote the book of the necessity of reforming the church, he said all our attempts at reform are aimed at two things. He said they either relate to the legitimate worship of God or the ground of salvation. We often think of the Reformation in regards to the five solas or the five points of Calvinism, which all deal with salvation. And that is important and was completely central to the Reformation. However, we miss the other half often. That Calvin, especially, was concerned about the legitimate worship of God. These are the two pillars of what they were doing. And they had very specific beliefs about it. And I think that this is often what we're missing. And I think is foreign to most new Calvinists. What do you think, Pastor Michael? Yeah, so I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I can only um, in a lot of ways go based off my own uh, perception and experience as far as when talking about uh, New Calvinism more broadly. Uh, but I think probably it's pretty true of most who listen here. It was true of me um, that, you know, the idea that there was a uh, particular way that the Bible taught us to worship was just not really thought of, right? So so worship, you know, um, who God is, the Bible teaches, um, but how we are to approach him in our worship um, was seen as something that you just kind of, you figure out, right? You, uh, you kind of uh, sense how you are supposed to approach God. It's, it's, this is something that I'm giving to God, right? So it, uh, whatever, you know, my gifting is or my desires are or the kind of music I like, and we take those things and we use those in order to bring them to God mm. um, rather than starting uh, the other way around and saying, okay, what, what has God revealed? What does God want us to bring? And bringing that instead. Yeah. And I think oftentimes when we think about this, quite honestly, I think there's a reason that a lot of churches with the YRR, if we look at, for example, a church like a Scottish Presbyterian church, this worship or an OPC church, the worship in these places don't look at all alike. Because I think, as we will see, there is diversity within the regulative principle. But there are but there are many things that have held Reformed worship together throughout time. So um, I think one place that uh, we can look just to get maybe a, a clear definition of what exactly the regulative principle is, and maybe we can use this as a uh, jumping off point uh, is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. So this is in the Westminster Confession uh, in chapter 21, part one. It says, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So here you have just kind of clearly laid out, um, God has instituted how he is to be worshipped and he should not be worshipped in any way that he has not prescribed. So um, you don't get to approach God however you want to, um, rather, you are to approach God the way that he wants you to. And I think there are two beliefs built into this statement that helps us understand where the regulative principle is coming from. And then I do think it gets to the true heart of the regulative principle. So one, it says that the light of nature, sometimes we call this general revelation, the revelation of creation. All people know that there is a God in some sense. However, 
that revelation, the trees, the creation, our consciences, that revelation actually does not provide the information of how we can worship God. And therefore, when the uh, reformers think about worship, and when I believe what the biblical teaching of worship is, we say, worship, like all things, exists to the ends of the glory of God. So our worship is about glorifying God. Then the question is, how can we know what worship will glorify God? How do we know if Hindu worship practices glorify God? How do we know, yeah, how, how can we figure out if, if uh, what the Jewish worship, uh, how do we figure out what will glorify God in worship? And the answer, especially when you take the Protestant belief in sola scriptura, which we hold to and Protestants hold to, we believe the sole answer is his revealed will in scripture, which is very similar to, as you see in the Jews in the Old Testament, how did they know what worship would please God? It was given to them in the law. Yeah. And straying from the law was considered either idolatry or corruption of such worship. Yeah, and this is really important. Understood by us that what the confession is saying here is simply uh, representing what the scripture teaches. Yes. Right? This is not something that uh, was just kind of made up. Um, this, you know, The reason we read this is because we believe it is uh, a helpful um, compilation of the whole of the scriptures teaching on this point. And so um, it's good to look back then. So how, how do you see God revealing himself and revealing how he is to be approached throughout the scripture? Think of the tabernacle, um, the, the exact way that it was to be constructed. Think of the, the sacrificial system as God um, gives this to the people and how they are to approach him. It was very particular in how they were to do that. Now, these things are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. I mean, he is the tabernacle of God. He is uh, the greater high priest. He is uh, uh, once for all sacrifice for sins. Um, so he is all of these things. Um, and yet, uh, the, the scripture still speaks to us about how we are to approach him, right? Uh, Jesus does tell the woman at the well, you know, there is coming a day when you will not worship on this mountain or that mountain, um, that there won't be a particular, you know, geographical location that worship was regulated to, such as with the temple. But rather, he says, you will worship in spirit and truth. So now our worship is regulated uh, in spirit and truth, in, in the, the spirit-revealed truth of the scriptures. We're, we're told how we are to do this. And I think we're coming to what we might call the, the catch. I think almost everyone with a, a biblical faith is like, yes, I want my worship to glorify God. Yes, I, I, I want to obey God and worship I think where the rubber meets the road with the regulative principle that makes it somewhat controversial and what made it controversial in the days of the reformers, it's what made them disagree with Anglicans, it's what made them disagree with Lutherans, is, we'll, we'll call it the teeth. The very end of this describes it. It says that we cannot worship God any other way prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And so I think almost all evangelical Christians, all Protestants would say, we cannot worship God in any way he's forbidden, right? We can't use idols, right? Israel could not do child sacrifice. We can't do anything like, like this if God has forbidden it. However, the regulative principle takes it one step further. It says we can only do what God has commanded. Pastor Michael, why, why the extra step? Why go just a little bit further? Yeah, a lot of this goes back to the doctrines of grace. Um, so when we think about um, how we are to approach God, the question is, um, who is in the rightful place to understand this? Who is in the rightful place to decide? Um, and obviously, everybody would agree, well, God is. Uh, but I do think that we also uh, like to add on, well, now that I'm redeemed, now that I'm a Christian, right now that the Holy Spirit is at work in, in my life, now, I, too, am capable of deciding what is or is not acceptable to God. Mm -hmm. And while that might be true to a limited degree, right, it is possible for you to bring to God worship that is acceptable. Um, it is not the case that you, in all circumstances, are going to have the best view on what exactly can be done. So uh, because you are a totally depraved, because sin has worked its way into every aspect of your thinking, of your doing, of everything, uh, because sin has worked its way even into the way that you interpret sometimes the scriptures, 
because it, uh, it has uh, impacted every area of your life. Though you are redeemed, the old man is still there. Uh, the sin nature does still cling on until uh, Christ returns and puts an end to it. And uh, in that intervening time period, uh, the reality is that you are not the, the best judge of what is and isn't right. And so you even hear that in the way that the confession talks, that um, you, don't, you don't want just the, the devices of men. Um, you don't want people who are easily deceived. Um, you don't want people who do fall to false teaching, which we do, right? Uh, and even Christians do. True Christians uh, do fall into false teaching sometimes. Uh, they, they have false beliefs. Um, we don't want uh, false beliefs to be the guide that we then use to judge how we worship God. And that is possible uh, when we just leave it open to, well, you know, uh, just bring whatever kind of offering you wish. Um, again, even if you just look at the scripture itself, it's very clear. You can't just bring whatever you want, right? This is the, the whole idea of strange fire, of, of Nadab and Abihu bringing uh, a sacrifice that God had not commanded. Um, it was still a sacrifice, right? It was probably sincere, uh, but it was not something commanded by God. And so um, this is something that we would, we would carry into, you know, every, every way that we think. Now, you know, this is, this is not to say, um, this is not a, we're not perfectionists. We're not saying that, well, if you just read the Bible, your worship will be perfect. And right. so, you know, something like that. It, we're not saying, we're not idealists. We're not saying that, that you're going to attain some kind of, you know, perfect state. Um, but what we are saying is that our goal is the glory of God. And uh, our goal is holiness. And whether or not we can perfectly enact what God has required of us in worship, we do want to seek to enact what God has required of us in worship. Um, and so it can, I mean, I, I know it can be difficult um, to kind of, you know, uh, take that step, but I, I do think it's it's scriptural. And I think that, let me give you the, let me give you the, how would Matt explain this to his kids answer? How would I explain to my child, we can only do in worship what God has commanded? Well, as I, my children know, can you see God? No, he has no body like man. We are, we are needing to interact with him in worship. Well, how can I know I'm interacting with God in worship? More than that, how can I know I'm interacting in a way that is pleasing for him and is a means of grace to me? And how can I know he's communicating with me? Well, because he is a spirit, because I can't control him, right? He is not like one of the pagan gods that I can force to interact with me, the only certainty I can have that I'm interacting with God is through means he has promised and he has prescribed to me. And therefore, everything he hasn't commanded receives no promise of that blessing. And so again, we're not saying God can't work above and beyond. We're not limiting God in any way. But we're saying when we come to the regular, ordinary worship, where will God meet me? Well, the Westminster Confession lays out some of the elements of this worship where God has promised to be blessed. The reading of scripture, the preaching of scripture, the singing of psalms, the administration of sacraments, um, taking religious oaths, vows, and fastings on special occasions, and giving thanksgivings. So, and I think I said prayer, but these are things God has positively commanded us to do in worship. And therefore, when I do those things, I can, I can take comfort in that God is at work. And I think what's important is, again, as we're saying, we aren't perfectionists. The regulative principle does probably for most of us maybe simplify our worship, but it doesn't mean we will necessarily look the same way. And not that that's not neutral and doesn't matter but that there are diverse circumstances where worship takes place. And our job is to, as best as we can, dispense the commanded elements of worship without adding to them and without taking away from them. And because we're sinful, we don't do that. Uh, we can't do that perfectly. And two, because we're in different countries, different languages, different times with different people, there will also be diversity in there. So there's probably a diversity, we might say, from sin, fallenness. But there's also just a true God-given diversity 
that we even see in the heavenly worship, where they cry out from every tribe, tongue, and nation. There is a diversity in heaven of worship that is totally united in its worship of God that is perfect and in what they sing to him. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, it's it's helpful to think of it in terms of the promises of God. Hmm. Um, it is, you know, how often do we struggle with, you know, desiring assurance that God hears us when we're praying to him? How, do, how often do we struggle with longings to know that what we're doing is pleasing to God? Uh, and because we have the authority of Scripture, again, not because Restless has authority, not because we have, you know, um, any particular kind of authority, uh, but because the Word of God has promised, because God speaking through His Word has promised us that when we pray to Him, uh, when, you know, two or more are gathered, when we, uh, you know, read His Word that He is speaking, when, you know, we could go on, all of these elements uh, of what we've talked about, this is something that he has promised that he is working through. He has told us what he is doing in these things. He has told us how he is using them. And so we can ultimately just, we can trust him. And so the Restless Podcast would like to say, we are we are urging you on on towards the regulative principle. And, and we do so not, again, on our authority, but on the word. But the reason we do so is not so much because we are like you you have not we are the question we don't believe the question is will you use the regulative principle or not we believe there is a principle there is a law that is deciding what worship is done in your church and in your own life and we're saying the question isn't if you will have a principle a regulative principle the question will be what does what principle what regulative principle decides what you do in worship yeah, so um, it there is something that is guiding how you worship in your individual life, and there is something that guides the worship of your church. This is something that, um, especially in our circles, um, you know, for everyone listening, I think that uh, you know, especially in the evangelical world, there's this assumption sometimes of things like, well, you know, every other church has this like really thick tradition, and uh, so they're kind of guided by something, but we're just kind of, you know, it's kind of more spontaneous and expressive and and we just kind of do things as we as we uh, believe God is guiding us or something like that and the reality is that uh, no everybody's church has a tradition and what we would actually go down to especially when it comes to you know how the worship is actually being done is we would say this this shows that every church has a relative principle of worship the difference is where you get it uh, where does it come from and so this is actually a, a helpful time Matt I think for us to uh, ask you particularly on this, because uh, recently you uh, wrote a paper dealing with the regulative principle, and I think something you did, I've, I've read it um, and uh, kind of walked through it a bit, and so I thought it would be helpful if you could kind of walk us through um, the different ways that you see different traditions of Christianity regulating worship, um, because I think by contrasting these things, uh, it can helpfully, you know, it can help us to understand uh, how maybe our church, even if it's not, you know, using what we would think of as a, you know, reform regulative principle of worship, it's still using some kind of principle to regulate the worship, uh, and we can kind of judge them accordingly. Yeah, you can email us at restlesspodcasting at gmail.com if you would like a copy of this paper. Uh, I do not promise it is a masterpiece, but it <laughs> at least will uh, give you the footnotes and other thoughts along these lines. So I would say maybe let's start with the most obvious example. The most obvious example of a competing thing saying we have, I have the authority to decide what's in worship is the Roman Catholic Church. And in that, in that church, I mean, it is a bold, it is an open claim that the magisterium of the church regulates worship. And the magisterium is the bishops, the creeds, and the pope, right? This is just the, the, I don't know if we want to call it this, the ruling class of the Roman Catholic Church <laughs> gets to determine what is done in worship. And and the reason they do that, I think sometimes, as I did, I often, as an evangelical, would really straw man Roman Catholicism. I thought they didn't know anything about the Bible. They just decided what they wanted. But really what they're saying is that the bishops and the Pope have the promise of God and the Spirit as the exclusive uh, infallible interpreters of the scriptures on earth. 
Right, with the apostolic authority to do these things. They, yes. They get to decide how we are to worship. And in that, and that is why they are what uh, is called the vicar of Christ on earth. They are the representative of Christ on earth. If you are not in the Roman Catholic Church, you are not in a true church. Right, because the visible church of Rome is the invisible church. It is, it is the, uh, the, the whole of the actual church. Yeah. And, and, and they have the authority from Christ to define what is supposed to be believed, de fide, to be saved, and how worship is done. Now, again, it's not that they say, we're inventing this. It's they're saying, we are the ones who get to define what scripture says. They would say, of course, for example, the sacraments, they all come from Christ, but we have the right to decide how they're done, who they're given to, and when they're done. Now, what's important to note is, is even there, even with these seven sacraments, if you ask Roman Catholicism, well, how do I know there are seven sacraments, right? If, if you're saying they're from Christ, that actually means in some way they're derived from scripture, or at least the or at least the revealed will of God. You ask them, well, how do I know that's the revealed will of God? And their answer is, well, the church has always taught truth. And because the sacraments are a matter of faith, essential to salvation, we cannot be mistaken on this matter. So in the end, when you ask, how do I know it's the revealed will of God? Their answer is the church says, the magisterium has says. So the, the way that you can know, so I mean, even just, again, going back to what we've kind of talked about with uh, a reform regulative principle of worship, where we say, we know that these are the elements of worship because God has spoken to us in his word and said, this is what they are. Um, and what you have more so in uh, the Roman communion is, this is what the church has said. That's how you know. So you right. can have some kind of objectivity. And, and we often... Presbyterians, I'll give just one little slightly advanced theology lesson. Presbyterians talk about the the offices of the church having ministerial authority, whereas we already talked about this. This is the magisterium. So what you can what you can hear the difference, magisterial, that's like magistrate. The Roman Catholic Church is essentially saying they have the right to write law, write ceremonies, and write beliefs. Presbyterian ministers like Pastor Michael they do come with the authority of Christ only though as they administer what the word of God says. Pastor Michael cannot force anything on anyone in his congregation's conscience except what is explicitly taught in the scripture. Yeah, so, you know, so this is, you know, even why we say I'm not claiming apostolic authority by saying that you should practice the regulative principle of worship. I'm not claiming uh, that I have the authority to speak on these things. Um, I don't have apostolic authority. In Rome, there are those who would claim their the authority has, is apostolic. Is apostolic. It is apostolic authority. The the apostolic authority that I have is not my own. It is like Matt said. It is ministered or it, it declarative is I, or declarative, and it's something that I go back to the apostolic authority of the scriptures themselves. And and the Roman Catholic Church says, well, you need us to define worship this way. Otherwise, you lose all unity, and everyone gets to say what worship is, right? And as we get to this one, and especially the next one where the the traditions of the church, we, Pastor Michael and I know that there are young men being attracted towards the traditions of Rome or especially Eastern Orthodoxy because of this. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a big, this is a big move right now. There's probably yeah. some of you listening right now that you thought this, or maybe you're kind of on the way. You think, yeah. well, you know, what I need in order to have that kind of certainty and not to have the chaos of what it seems in kind of the, the typical Protestant church is I need some kind of objective standard. And the easy way out in that regard is to say, well, I guess I'll just take the church's word for it. And, and, and I will say the problem with this authority and this assurance rome offers is that it's false assurance because the church of rome has erred and even church councils have erred so therefore the church saying we have said this we are the arbiter of truth for me is actually no is no comfort because i know that they have erred and again let us just look at the last if even if you're a roman catholic listening you can't tell me that the current pope and the previous pope teach the same doctrine. Yeah, so there's change. You see change over time, and if there's change over time, that means that something is has not been right, evidently. And we believe the regulative principle creates 
the unity in the right place, which is obedience to the word of God. We have unity in worship with all churches that obey God. And we don't say they have to, we don't have to enforce a certain look, a certain language on these people like Rome has done, Latin, because we can rest in the assurance of unity in what God has said. Uh, so here's the next version of this, which I would say is one that would be um, maybe most attractive to someone like me. Someone who has um, raised in evangelicalism, uh, has been exposed to the chaos of of skits and water guns. What and... is Matt, what is your favorite skit? What, <laughs> what is what uh, is your favorite drama that you got to? Oh man. Uh there was Were my, you ever in any I, skits? It's true I wasn't because I had oh. a bad attitude. My favorite <laughs> See, my, I was in skits. I know. You were a good kid. My favorite <laughs> that I ever saw was done to uh that really great song uh uh Turnaround Bright. Turn right. Oh, I, I've been in that one. Oh, <laughs> turn around, oh. the Turnaround skit. I've oh, been in well. it, man. I wonder if it's legal for me to use that song as our bumper music this I week. I think I was often Satan in these skits. <laughs> I don't remember for All sure. All I remember oh, is or that... Or I was at least like a druggie, right? Yes. Like I was somebody, there was always somebody with drugs, like trying to tempt you into coming yep. doing drugs. Get, and just, I'll never forget the person getting you drugged away, drugged away <laughs> until until the end. Anyways, if you don't know that skit, wow. Uh, God bless you. God bless <laughs> And if you were in it, also God bless you. <laughs> yeah. But, but in light of that, I think there for me is a uh, a strong pull towards what we might call our theology regulates worship. Uh, you could say this: the our traditions regulate worship, and this would be what is found in the Lutheran, the Anglican, and even the Eastern Orthodox to a to a degree. And a lot of times. When Reformed people describe what Lutherans believe specifically, they say they believe in the normative principle of worship. They believe that they will do anything in worship that God doesn't forbid. And I actually think if you read Lutherans, none of them describe their worship using the normative principle. And so I don't want to use that to describe them. And two, if you, a way many Reformed people try and drive the Lutheran worship into a ditch is by saying, well, uh, marital intimacy isn't forbidden. So I guess that's allowed in worship or, right, can we eat lunch in worship? You know, that we'll, we, we point out all these things that aren't forbidden that they won't do that no Lutheran church has ever done, no Anglican church has ever done, and none of these churches would dream of doing any of these things. And so what I think is better to say is how do they test if they can do something in worship is if it's forbidden by scripture, we won't do it. What positively determines what they do is the theology of the church over time. And so they would say, right, that the theological commitments of the traditional liturgy determine what we do. So they look to the theology of their tradition and the church, and they say, this is where we can trust God is working. It's tested by previous generations. And I do think a lot of this is really commendable. Absolutely. And I do think for those of us who are in times that are so uncertain and so um, um, in seeming upheaval and seeming we have so few things we're attached to, unattached to something historic, and especially within our brothers who are in the Lutheran church that is focused upon the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ correctly is very attractive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, um, I'm sure that we have some Lutheran listeners and, and we love uh, our Lutheran brothers and and uh, even if we have slight disagreements here, mm-hmm. um, there, you know, uh, G.K. Chesterton, a papist, all right, so uh, he would not uh, have, you know, uh, agreed to this view. But uh, he once said somewhere that uh, tradition is the democracy of the past. And so you have this idea, and I think that's a really helpful way of looking at it, where, you know, if you are following a more historic liturgy, for instance, um, it's it's not as though this is something that you're just coming up with on the spot. Um, this has the fingerprints, if you will, of many who have gone before you. And that's a really helpful thing. That is something, you know, when, when the Bible tells us not to, you know, move the boundary markers that our ancestors have established, I think one of the, you know, kind of practical implications of that is that we should take the traditions of those who have gone before us very seriously. This is not something to throw off easily or to you know disregard easily, um, which I think if we go back to the time of the Reformation is why you have the reformers just you know they they're not trying to you know drastically change the church. Right. They just think we've gotten off 
off the right road. We just got to kind of move back onto it. Uh, but they, you know, in many ways kept uh, a lot of elements and would often go back to um, the earlier fathers of the church in order to defend what they were doing. Um, if you read Calvin's Institutes, he goes on at length and, and throughout the Institutes. But um, there, are, there are times where he specifically defends um, the Reformation against the, the common you know, attack that uh, they were, you know, leaving the ancient roots of the faith, that they were leaving the fathers uh, of the faith. And he would, you know, quote at length many different early church fathers to say, look, we are right in line with what they were doing. Look, we're doing what the ancient church did. Um, the problem is that things had gone astray uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. And so they were trying to bring things back. And so, you know, tradition is, is very commendable, as you say. Right. And so, we are not saying we should not look at how the church has done this historically, that we should not seek to give um, the past its vote, to understand how the early church did worship, and that those things shouldn't inform us. And even using certain liturgical forms, we're not saying we should throw those out. Neither did Calvin or the Reformers, right? We're not saying we get rid of using the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, uh, even some of the very common call and responses, the old songs that were written Right, the Gloria Patri, which our, our church here closes with every week. We're not saying we should get rid of those. The question is, and, and, and there are there are sort of two in the end, at because we're reformed, the reason we don't think that looking at what your church tradition has done is is can be what decides your worship is two reasons. One, there is a tendency to believe to give these certain traditions and certain forms of these traditions, what a person wears, right? The, if there are certain vestments, the certain setup of a church, the certain um, kinds of call and responses we do in the liturgy, a sacramental blessing that God, we promise God works through a certain set of traditions through which we, again, we can't say that these specific forms have that blessing. If it's the preached word, we know it is, but there are different forms that that preach word can take. The certain look of a Lutheran church or Anglican church in itself does not receive the blessing of God. And the second problem, and this is perhaps the, the greater problem, is that we once again have to ask the question, we have to ask the question, how do we decide which of these traditions are valuable and good and needed in worship and which aren't? Do we decide that because they are present in our church tradition, they are? Or do we, again, have to ask, has Scripture commanded this? For example, the Reformers differed with the Lutherans on if we should have an altar inside of our churches, inside of the sanctuary. The Reformers said no, because in New Testament worship, the sacrifice does not continue. It's been completed. Lutherans said because the early church, even people in the early church, used had altars in their worship we should continue and so because these traditions have no power in themselves we only use the elements that are assured the blessing even if they've been practiced a long time by god and his word so we'll go with one more as we try not to go too long this one might be uh one that is more familiar this is what Pastor Michael regulates evangelical worship. And I've really wrestled with how to describe this. And I, I described it in two ways that I believe, uh, again, with all of these, I'm doing my best to represent this view as, as adherents would represent it. And I'm not taking time to go through all of their criticisms of what Pastor Michael and I do. Lutherans have a reason for not wanting to do what we do. Roman Catholics have a very clear reason. But evangelicals also have something that regulates their worship even though it is often not stated and we might say something like uh, the authentic experience of the worshiper regulates the worship or our sincerity in our worship regulates our worship what do you think about that as me summarizing it yeah so i think this is true this is i mean this is the the kind of tradition that i grew up in um this is the you know the the main way that my understanding of worship was really formed, and it is very much like, you know, as long as your heart is in it, you know, as, as long as you feel like the Holy Spirit is working through it, as long as you have uh, a sincere heart in what you're doing, God will accept it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, 
this is where, you know, if you start to quibble with, you know, well, I don't know that we should be singing this song in what we're doing because of, you know, what it says. Well, you know, this person over here uh, has been really blessed by it. Right. So why not? You know, and so all of a sudden, uh, basically one's personal experience becomes uh, a standard for whether or not you can use it. And then, you know, obviously we would say that in the, you know, maybe the, the steel man case of experience would be sincerity. Like it's, it's not just I experience, it's I have, you know, I have wrestled with this. I have thought about it and I really believe that this is the right way to go. Right. And again, I, in preparing to write this paper, I read the contemporary worship chapter in Perspectives on Christian Worship to make sure I was going to represent it as well as I could. And I'll say some of the things I even found in that chapter defending some contemporary worship practices surprised me. Uh, a few things it said was, why, why, do, why is this subjective experience, this like sincerity Pastor Michael's talking about, why is this so valued? And this is a direct quote. It says, because it arises spontaneously and instinctively from within communities of the church that search for fresh language to engage worship that spring from their individual and communal hearts. And so what's what's fascinating is, again, this is saying that a form of worship is justified by the sincerity of wanting to honor God. But what's what really shocked me is, therefore, the church actually must sing new songs. We have to sing new music. And so what I'm telling you is that the contemporary worship music, usually left undefined, would say, hey, no, we just want to be able to sing new songs. How could you, with your hymnal, try and keep us from singing these new songs? Well, the truth is, is that they, what's regulating the worship is a belief that we must sing these songs. Which is why you're constantly changing, right? You, you are constantly updating what you're doing. And, you know, for the record, um, we update what we're doing too. Right. I mean, we, we add different songs. We, you know, update music for various songs and things like that. And so we're not against that per se. Right. But, uh, you know, we're, we're doing these things at, that we see as more circumstantial um, around what we believe the Bible has commanded. And so it doesn't become a way that, you know, our desire to do that doesn't become that which dictates what we are supposed to do. Right. Right. The regular principle does not forbid the, the use of new tunes that are still reverent and appropriate for worship that guide congregational singing or uh, most of the regular principle allowing other, other non-scriptural uh, songs, right? Doesn't forbid songs as long as they're scriptural, theologically rich, and accord with sound Christian wisdom, right? But what the contemporary worship is, is that we have to do the newest thing and we have to sing the newest songs because our worship has to reflect our current sincerity towards God. And, and, that, and the other thing you notice when you think about this contemporary worship, I often sometimes in evangelical worship, right? Worship is typically divided into times where we're singing and listening to the sermon. Well, why is that? Because worship in this sense is almost exclusively used in thought of in singing to God. That the singing to God is the worshiping part. And this is, I mean, this is why, you know, especially when you're talking, when, when the idea of sincerity or personal experience becomes what dictates what worship is, it is not surprising that uh, the singing portions, especially, you know, certain uh, kinds of singing, become more and more important to the worship service. We're not saying that singing isn't important. It's literally commanded. Um, so, I mean, we are supposed to sing in the worship service, uh, and, and that is a good and glorious thing. Uh, however, when it takes over the worship service in that, like the, the worship service is singing to such a point that, I mean, it literally is growing up. Like when you talk about worship, you meant I'm singing. talking about singing. Uh, when we talk about, you know, um, uh, if, you know, if I was going to, um, going to talk to anybody about, uh, what worship is the, I mean, the, the word worship and singing were always interchangeable. And so, you know, you do see uh, that come about because what is the, you know, what, what part of worship is most easily kind of clung onto um, with 
by my you know emotions, by mm-hmm. my heart, by my my sincerity. You know that that right. that part of me that has you know these sincere desires and and affections. It's music. I mean, music. One of the roles of music is to help guide and direct our affections, and so right. um, so it makes sense that you would latch onto that part. And and right, this is actually a critique of this view that I remember early on in the YRR hearing that the sermon is also part of worship. Well, once you open up that, you open up the question of what are the, well, what else is in worship? Yeah, what else? And then as we saw the Westminster Confession talking about prayers, offerings, even oaths, right? All of these things that I would have never thought of worship, I now do. And there are there are two issues with this. There's one issue, we might call it the cultural issue. This view of worship almost inevitably leads to subordinating what God has commanded in worship to what we want or what we experience in worship. And uh, a person who holds to this view would say, no, we wouldn't, we will not, we would not change worship based on our desires. We would never, you know, we'd never pit that up against the command of God. But what we have to do then is we have to come up with an alternative explanation for why the evangelical church's worship in the last hundred year, hundred years changed more than it did in about 350 years before that. What what led to that change? Because, again, 350 years of worship, a lot of cultural changes occurred in those people's lives, in those generations. What has now changed, right? I think it is, again, what is regulating worship. And then the second one is, Pastor Michael and I, we don't, we don't fault the sincerity of anyone. I want to, I want to please God. I'm doing whatever I can. The problem is that this method of, of regulating worship gets our sincerity precisely backwards, right? The issue is that nothing we can do can make ourselves acceptable to God. We're sinners. We can't make our worship acceptable. And and it's so great that evangelicals want that. What a good and holy desire. Absolutely. That is. But this is why we need to say that worship is actually a product of the work of God, and as Pastor Michael has emphasized, the promises of God. And because even in worship, we're dependent on God, and we're dependent on what he's given us in his word, what we do in faith is we say, this is the worship God has wants, and I will sincerely do my best to do that and submit to it. Yeah, and so this is the the reality um, that there are times when um, to come to worship you're not really feeling it. You're not really sincere. And part of worshiping God is the training up. You know, we did this whole episode on emotions and affections. Um, you know, part of worship is training yourself so that you're, you know, you're training that sincerity. You're training that desire. You're training those affections so that they're directed in the proper way. Because you can be really sincerely wrong about right. things. And so what we want is the true sincerity, right? That true heartfelt, like, I am in this. But we want that to be directed uh, toward the means that God has provided, toward the, the ways that God has dictated that we worship. And, and this is where I think is what has left me with a great deal of comfort in churches that practice the regulative principle of worship is that because I know what God desires in worship and I know that that's what we're focusing on, I know whatever other circumstance is going on is irrelevant, right? I know that no matter my feelings, I can come to worship in a way that honors God. I know that as we sit here, we're sitting in a cry room where I often take a small son, but I know that because I can participate equally with all the elements of worship, of prayers, of singing, of hearing the word and hearing it preached to me, I can still be part of worship that pleases God no matter what outer circumstances, no matter if the church has to meet in secret, no matter if the church has to meet in the field, no matter what, I can rest and 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 know that even if my son is unhappy, even if I'm just struggling to go through those motions, I'm part of worship as God has commanded. And that takes a load off my shoulders. So this is why um, we think this is important. We think that uh, this this really matters. And it's one of the elements that was always missing from New Calvinism. Uh, it's one of the things that, you know, like Matt said, there were times that we approached 
getting closer to this, wanting to incorporate the sermon, for instance, into the idea of worship, trying not to simply speak of the singing portion of the service as worship, but ultimately it still fell short because it did not have uh, this full view that no, God has actually told us what he wants. He has, he, has, uh, he has told us how we are to approach him and the ways uh, that he is at work already. And so um, this is, you know, our, our encouragement, I guess, to think more about this, you know, um, test it according to the scriptures, test what we're saying. Uh, I am, I'm confident that if you um, truly go to the, the word of God, you will ultimately find that this is, this is where it will direct you. Um, and it's not always the easiest. And when I, you know, first showed up at the church that I'm now a pastor at, uh, I remember thinking the one thing that I didn't really like about the church but it wasn't as important to me at this point, was a lot of the elements of worship. I, didn't, I, I did not feel comfortable, put it that way. I didn't feel as comfortable as I was used to feeling in worship. And it probably took maybe six months, maybe 12 months. And after that point, I, I thought, I love this. I, I came to like it. I, I came to enjoy it. And, you know, our church is going to look different than another church that's using the same principle of worship uh, because there are, you know, different circumstances and, and uh, ways that God has, uh, you know, gifted particular churches uh, that it, it's just going to look different. It's going to sound different. Um, but ultimately, no matter where you're at, uh, if a church is uh, following this principle that uh, the worship of the church is being drawn from God's word, that God has revealed how we are to approach him, uh, we can be confident that this is God at work. Thanks for listening to us here on Restless Talk About Worship. Yeah, we had fun doing it. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Um, if you did, go ahead and leave a five-star review. Leave us uh, you know, whatever kind of comments that you want. If you want to get in touch with us, restlesspodcasting at gmail.com. Uh, we would love to interact more. And we promise next week we will be back with more Mars Hill content. Here we go.